This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today joins me for the second time here on Digging in the Dirt. He's filmmaker John Feldman. I first met John when I discovered his film Symbiotic Earth about the renowned unknown to the public scientist Lynn Margulis, a wonderful film. Now he's out with his latest film, Regenerating Life, a three-part documentary that highlights the importance of biodiversity and natural ecosystems in regulating the climate. Welcome, John. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks. I've been listening to you quite a bit. I've watched your remarkable film four times. I discover something else revelatory each time. So it's a lot to digest there. So we'll do as best we can with the time we have allotted. You know, the film tracks growing movements of farmers, activists, scientists, and others working to repair the environment and social devastation we have caused. And it pushes back against the idea that this is only about carbon emissions. What got you to this point of view when you came out of the other film, Symbiotic Earth? Well, it's interesting. I, out of Symbiotic Earth, I was planning to make a film about farm ecology. And I was visiting some farms. And I then began to talk to people about regenerative agriculture and the effect that regenerative agriculture had on climate change. So I got very interested in that. After Symbiotic Earth and while this process of trying to figure out what my next film was, there was a screening by an organization called Biodiversity for a Livable Climate. So naturally, I went to their website before the screening, and I discovered that this is what they were all about, was how the treatment of the land affects climate change. So then I saw a video by Walter Yena, and that's what kind of led me to this point where I realized that people had to understand how much the environment affects the climate. And just to add to that, I also had learned from Symbiotic Earth through Lynn Margulis that one of the whole points about the Gaia theory is that the system of life, that is all the organisms on the planet, what we call the biosphere, it's a system of life that regulates the climate. And that's in a very intriguing thought. And so that's what I followed up with in this film. And you did a great job of that. And that's what I got from the, the symbiotic earth was that the most the, the most important thing to get is that we're a system of systems. And if we screw up one of the systems, it starts throwing all the other systems out of balance. That's right, that's right. And when you have a systemic problem, it's hard to understand, but you do know that if it's a systemic problem, that means there are many places for intervention. There are many ways you can fix a systemic problem, and you have to tackle as many of those ways as you can in order to solve the problem. That's a very interesting. Yeah, it, you know, one thing that recurs in this film, Regenerating Life, is that if we let Mother Nature resuscitate herself, Maybe with a little help from us, you know, where we know what we're doing a bit and without interfering, she will repair herself. Right. Exactly. I mean, she will repair herself. I mean, the, the thing about life and the definition of life is that life is a regenerative system. It's the only thing we know of that regenerates itself. You look at a tree and every 
year, that tree puts out more leaves, that tree grows just like we do. We're constantly regenerating ourselves. And it's not just through birth that we regenerate ourselves, but we regenerate our skin. All of the organs in our body are regenerated over our life. And it's the same with trees. It's, it's a regenerative process. And that's what could be our saving knowledge, as it were. Mm -hmm. An interesting and insightful discussion in the film is about the hijacking of the entire climate conversation into CO2 emissions and fossil fuels. It's a sort of a distraction from what we need to consider regarding ecological restoration, what we're talking about here. And it's also followed by an explanation that the rising CO2 levels and global warming trends are not causes, but symptoms of ecological loss. And your film points that out, that the world's emphasis on reducing carbon emissions is misplaced. What should we be emphasizing? Well, we should be emphasizing that the climate crisis that we're experiencing is caused by our destruction of nature, by our destruction of the environment. And that stands to reason, because if it's, if it's nature that regulates the climate, then by destroying nature, we're screwing up the climate. Mm -hmm. um, but just bouncing back for a minute to the CO2 thing, this was obviously a big, a big issue for me, because if you look around, the climate crisis is always equated with rising carbon emissions. And rising carbon emissions are really hardly a cause, more of a symptom, as you said, than all this other stuff, than the destruction of the earth. So I, I'm, I keep wondering, how is it that the solution to the energy crisis, which is renewable energy and so forth, morphed into the solution to the climate crisis, which really has nothing to do with it. And today we're on a path of electrifying the country, electric cars. There's just a film out by Oliver Stone that nuclear energy is the solution to the climate crisis. And all of these things are great solutions to the energy crisis, but they're not a solution to the climate crisis. And in some ways, because of all the mining, they could make it worse. Hmm. So why is that? Why isn't it the solution? It's not the solution because carbon emissions and the rising levels of carbon emissions in the atmosphere is a part of the greenhouse effect, but it's a very small part of the greenhouse effect. And when you look at that as the only part of the problem, you're forgetting all the other ways that the nature regulates the climate. For instance, the biggest example that I talk about is that we think about the greenhouse gases, of which carbon dioxide is about 30%, the greenhouse gases as this insulating layer. And that's you know a fairly good metaphor. But we don't often talk about, well, where does the heat come from, um, which is being insulated, right? If you have a blanket, where's the heat coming from? And the heat is coming from re-radiation off the Earth's surface. And there's always re-radiation off the Earth's surface. But what's happened is by burying the land, by cutting down the forests, by leaving fields empty of any vegetation, that re-radiation increases dramatically. And so much so that it's really retaining energy in the planet. Mm -hmm through the greenhouse effect. 
So you're saying the greenhouse effect, what you just described, is what's driving the heating of the planet. The greenhouse effect is is driving the overheating of the planet. And on top of that, by destroying the forests and destroying the biosphere and so many other things, we have reduced the cooling potential. Mm -hmm. Water on the planet is the cooling engine, as it were. We have a water-cooled planet. And this happens in a, in a variety of ways, but it's a huge part of the climate. I mean, obviously, if you have a temperature regulation system, you've got some warming things and you have some cooling things and they've got to balance each other. So we've increased the warming and decreased the cooling. And that's the, a big picture look at it. And the cooling takes place by water, transpiration, water, and evaporation. Yeah. Yeah, you just jumped ahead a little bit. I just want to touch on the, the, the fact that what has happened is that our system of government and our, our system of economics has decided that the best way to do this is to mitigate carbon going into the atmosphere. They want NEDs, but they want to use it with technology. It's sort of, isn't it sort of the arrogance that got us in this place in the first place? We we're, we're, we invented all these things during the Industrial Revolution. We put all this stuff in, and now we're realizing that this was a big problem, what we've been doing with the, the industry and all our different technologies. But now they want to get us out with the technology. Right. I mean, it's terribly ironic. Um, and, you know, there's that famous quote of, Einstein's, right? You can't solve a problem with the same way you caused it. Um, or that's not an exact quote. <laughs> and, and so, uh, yes, um, technology is not going to be our ultimate answer. And it's this dependence on technology, which is, is really the problem, because obviously some technology is good. I mean, we like technology. I love my movie cameras, you know, but we can't depend on technology to solve our problems. And there are much, much, much easier, easier ways to go about it. And that is stop exploiting the planet and and try to repair well, it and, naturally. Yeah. And but it's, it, you know, I have a hard time understanding how this really came about, because the scientists who wrote the papers and the, and so forth, they understood all this stuff and they knew what was going on. But it was when the shift came to the public and really the politicians that it got simplified down to carbon emissions, and that sent them off in this direction of sucking carbon out of the air and electrification to stop on fossil fuels and so forth. Mm -hmm. They seem to come up with those solutions all the time. For instance, plastics, right? The answer is recycling, where we all know it. the answer is right. to stop making plastic that lasts for millions of years. Exactly, exactly. Yes, of course, of course. So... Let's jump into the film a bit. You have three parts in this film. We already started talking about one. That the Part one is water cools the planet. Part two is life sustains the climate. And part three is small farms feed the world. So you already started with the water. So let's continue to that. What's the deal there? You, you, as you said, we're a water planet and we're cooled by that. So tell us some of the issues there that are in the film. So I think the first you have to imagine, you know, think of a, a scene and whether it's your own body or a forest, water flows through everything. We know it flows through ourselves. We drink it. We pee it. We know it flows through plants. Um, and we, we, have a, uh, we have a propensity to, to think, oh, my God, we're running out of fresh water. Um, and this is happening all over the world. We're running out of fresh water. And, of course, the question you would next ask was, well, where did the fresh water come from? How does the fresh water get here? 
Um, and the fresh water gets here through storms, and it gets here through what's called the biotic pump. And the biotic pump is one of the things I just learned about in making this film. And it's basically this idea that as trees transpire water, and I should add that, you know, most people don't think about it, but trees sweat, trees sweat too, as we say in the film. Trees transpire water, that water evaporates off the leaves. And as it evaporates and rises into the atmosphere, water is sucked in from the ocean. And that water, which is sucked in from the ocean, can be carried across a continent by other biotic pump cycles. So it's an amazing system that pulls fresh water, water vapor, um, in from the oceans and into the continents. Um, and so we don't, we don't think about it much, but when we look at fires, for instance, that are happening on California or the Washington coast, um, the whole West Coast really, or right now in Canada. But on the West Coast, there used to be trees all along the coastline, beautiful forests all along the coastline, and they were cut down. And that's why there isn't as much water keeping the land moist to prevent these forest fires. Mm -hmm. So water circulates through everything. And if you think about evaporation, we all know that evaporation takes heat, it cools us off, it takes heat, and it moves it away. And it does this for the entire planet that plants evaporate water off their off their leaves it's called transpiration and that water rises in the atmosphere and eventually the water condenses as raindrops and the heat goes into outer space and we need heat going into outer space because we always have heat coming in and what you want is a balanced planet you want the same amount coming in as is going out I mean, it's really complicated. It really right? is. And the ecosystem has worked this out over millions of years to get to this point, right? That's right. And the Earth didn't always have the same temperature and the same climate. But this is where we are now, and it works pretty well. Up to now. But now it's starting to change. That's why we're getting atmospheric rivers. We're getting storms. I've never seen storms like we're getting. And the rain is so heavy, and there's squalls constantly blowing through, and we're getting tornadoes and all this. This is all changing because... The systems are changing. The Am I right? Are changing. Absolutely. Um, and all of those storms are happening because the oceans are hotter. And the oceans are hotter, evaporating more water. And that water travels, some of it, not all of it, travels through clouds over to the continent, and then it dumps it as storms. And the hotter the ocean gets, the, the bigger the storms, because that process is the process of cooling the ocean. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, so, it's a little bit out of whack now, so that's why we're getting these weird, I call well, it global weirding. The oceans are, are you know, if you, if, if, the oceans have been absorbing most of that excess heat. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now they're trying to get rid of it with the storms. So the storms are gonna keep coming. And one of the cool things I learned in the film through this guy, Jim Laurie, is that, well, you know, if we keep having all these storms across the country, you know, there's an opportunity. And the opportunity is that when we have storms, if we hold that water on the land, somehow, then we will have more fresh water. But what's happening now when we have a storm is we just want to get rid of it. We want to get rid of it, get it into the rivers, get it into the canals, get it out of here. 
which makes sense if you're in the midst of a flood. Yeah, too um, much. Yeah. But there is an opportunity to hold because of these big storms to hold water upstream and to keep the water on the land so that we can use it for crops and that we can use it to to drink and everything. Yeah, you tell a story in there about the much maligned beaver who that's his job <laughs> to hold the water <laughs> upstream, right? But we don't we've we've abandoned that idea. We just then uh, up till now and it's starting to come back because people don't have the water. Right. People don't have the water. Yeah. 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 So part two is life sustains climate. What's what's in that section? So that chapter tells about how this process of life, starting with photosynthesis, how it cycles energy, water, carbon dioxide, and eventually we get to other minerals. Everything on the planet, all the matter cycles. Energy doesn't cycle. Energy comes in, flows through living systems, and then it goes out again. But all the matter cycles. And we know that carbon dioxide and uh, water cycle from the process of photosynthesis, where we make the sugars, to the process of combustion, where we burn the sugars, and out comes uh, oxygen and uh, water again. People don't really think about this, but when you have a fire and you see that smoke coming out, like if you go to your do your charcoal this summer and you see that smoke coming out, that's a lot of water. If you take a plate and hold it over that smoke, eventually you'll see that there's water on has condensed on mm -hmm. that on the under, underside of that plate. Interesting. Um, so water flows through everything. And the other part of that life sustains the climate is what I like to call the poop cycle. We don't think about this very much. And I, I think I've overemphasized it in the film. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of poop. <laughs> there's a lot of poop in this film. I think if there was an award for how much poop you have in a film, this would have the most. This would get the award. The poop cycle is the way that all of life cycles what's called essential nutrients or essential minerals. There are minerals, nitrogen, phosphorus. There's a whole range of them that we need in our bodies. They don't make up much of our body. Very, very small amount of our actual mass is these minerals, but they're essential. Um, they're in our, in our proteins, they're in our DNA and so forth. And they are cycled through poop and through decomposition, through decay right. of the animals. And this is all done thanks to bacteria and fungi, who are the little workers that not only take it out of the rocks and take it out of the poop, but then they give it back to the plants. I think it was Lynn Mar Margulis who said that it's a, a circular thing in nature, whereas some pe somebody's garbage is somebody else's food in nature. Where the, right. oh, the human being is the only one that keeps throwing everything out but doesn't re you know, really recycle anything. We That's what we're talking about here. We have to get change our whole program here and become more like nature and help nature do it for us. Exactly. And and we do, we're trying to recycle, but we don't recycle much at all. And the idea of recycling our poop, you know, is, is so anathema to popular culture that it may never happen. There are yeah. cultures that do it. There are cult cultures that do it. But or at least us. recycle our, our uh, organic waste matter into right. compost. You know, that, that's something we talk about here on this show quite a bit because it's such something we all can do. You know, yes. speaking of poop, I, before we move to the next section, you have this guy, Ruben Duro's footage, which is pretty incredible. You want to tell the audience about what he contributed to the film? I mean, there is one 
I, I think it was him who did it. The remarkable time-lapse footage of fungi growing on horse poop. I mean, it's, it opens a section that we're going to talk about. It's pretty remarkable footage. Tell us about Ruben Duro. So I saw a book of Ruben's photographs years ago, and I was just blown away by it. And then I found out that he was, he had shot some things of, uh, it was, I think it was spirochetes. So I contacted him and I really had this fantasy that I would get to know this guy and maybe he would teach me about shooting through microscopes. <laughs> and so I met him, he's from Barcelona and he worked or used to work for a colleague of Lynn's, Carter Guerrero. Um, and we have become close friends. And when I saw how complicated it was to, to shoot these microbes and get beautiful imagery, I said, you know what? He can do that. I'll just work with him. I don't have to learn that one. I don't have to learn Smart that move. <laughs> um, and he's truly amazing. And yeah, no, it's the stuff in the film is, is just beautiful. He's got a series of, you know, microscopes and cameras attached to them. And he does something which is quite remarkable, which is that if it's a dark field microscopy. So when you look at the image, it's black behind it. Mm -hmm. And in the in most of the footage, you see that black behind it, and uh, that really makes it even more stunning. That's right, surely, really pops out. Thing. But he also shoots things like the the what you mentioned, the time lapse of the fungi spores, spore caps coming off the horse poop, and he does his another incredible time lapse in the film of the mycelium growing. Um, it's this feathery, feathery web that grows down the frame. It's astounding stuff. And one of the things I do in the film is I, 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 I want to put the stuff in context because when we look at the soil, it's hard to know how big these things are. So I take us through kind of a stepwise process of getting smaller and smaller and looking at the things all the way down to bacteria. We're talking to John Feldman, who has a wonderful new film out called Regenerating Life. I hope to get it down in this area so we can do a screening and maybe even get John to come down and talk about it. So we, we are delving into his film right now. You know, one of the compelling lessons in the film is that nature can help us solve our climate problems if we just give her a chance. We've talked about that. But, you know, right now, big ag, our politicians, uh, the financial institutions are all into solutions that don't lie in that area. They're, they're interested in expanding industrial agriculture, the green revolution, as you mentioned, and rather than nurturing small local farm communities. They, they're going for these big solutions that are not working. They're not covering the land like small farmers are learning to do, like, you know, cover crops and stuff like that, you know. What's so bad about this thing called the Green Revolution? Well, the Green Revolution was this idea that through hybrid strains of crops, we could grow more productively and we could feed the world. And it really started in, in India, but it's been spreading all over the place. And you would say that it's also here in this country. And so the problem with this are, first of all, they think about monocultures and they think about planting a monoculture in these beautiful rows, which we all admire. You see these, you know, what's it, the um, amber waves of grain, right? These monocultures are beautiful. But whenever you have a monoculture, which means you have no biodiversity, you're subject to all sorts of pests and insects. And can you imagine if you like to eat wheat and, and all of a sudden 
you land upon a wheat field, I mean, the, the, your, your population would soar. Mm -hmm. So knowing this, they then started to incorporate lots of pesticides to kill the insects. And of course, the pesticides also kill the organisms in the soil. And that combined with the plowing, because plowing, ironically, by turning up the soil, kills the fungi and the microorganisms and everything living there. So the monoculture, the plowing of the soil, the pesticides, and also, of course, the fertilizers have caused tremendous problems to the climate. And ironically, the output you know, may be good for the first couple of years, but when they've done these studies, it's really not producing so much more food than could have been done otherwise in a natural way. Of course, most of these crops are commodity crops and commodity crops really aren't designed for people to eat. Some of them they do, but mostly they're designed for animals, fuel, plastics, you know, various soybeans. These commodity crops aren't the things that you generally put on your table. You might make some bread out of one of the, you know, out of wheat that was grown that way, but generally they're, they're used for various things and they're used for, uh, for processed food, for what we right. call junk food. And so all of this has a, you know, catapulting effect. Uh, so the idea of industrialized agriculture has ironically caused tremendous health problems and has led to uh, food shortages in countries which used to be able to grow all their own food. Right. And not only that, the other problem is that they are cutting down the forest to get agricultural land to grow crops, correct? Right, absolutely. They're cutting down the land for the crops and they're cutting down the land for the meat, for right. the cattle. For grazing and, and yeah. yeah. Cattle it's, farms, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It, it's right. It's crazy. So that that sort of brings us to the small farm feeds the world. I think it was Vandana Shiva who said that 70% of the population is fed by small farms, even though it's a misnomer that it's, it's these big industrial places that are going to save the world. Right. The actual people eat what they're eating is coming from small farms already anyway, but they're not supported. They're not supported. Yeah. Yeah. They're not supported by the governments. Yeah, I know. And the, of course, the irony you're bringing up is that the government supports the commodity growing with a tremendous amount, tremendous amount. In the United States, you know, the subsidies to the big corporations that grow commodities are quite big, but that builds the GDP. Right. Um, and that's important to our, our government. But when we, when, when we say that thing about 70% of the world is eats from small farms, we have to remember that that's probably not the case in the United States, but there's a lot more to the world than the United States. Right, right. We just, yeah, I understand that. So also in there, you said that humankind is now denuded about 40% of the planet. We used to have trees everywhere. And now, you know, the Sahara used to be green and, you know, right. the, the cedars of Lebanon. And it goes on and on and all the stuff that mankind has wantonly just killed off and in the name of progress and, and profit too. Right, right. Well, it's interesting that 40% figure, you know, it's basically where we are now. Because obviously, like a place where I live, um, I live in the Northeast, there were forests here, then they were cut down, but then forests grew again. So the forests will grow back. But right now, 40% of the land that was once green is now bare. And that does include the Sahara Desert, which is a 
pretty much a man-made desert. Although I, I have to personally, I, I mean, I personally think that probably there was some uh, some natural uh, catastrophes that also happened. I mean, you know, in the in the Dust Bowl, there was also a drought, um, and we might not have had the Dust Bowl had there not been a drought. But nonetheless, one would argue that well, maybe the drought was inevitable because you destroyed the soil. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, but it's like you're saying that basically, if we could cover up this 40 percent again you know in one way or the other with cover crops or trees whatever it is we can start mitigating that heating effect that's going on with the planet it's a, the bare ground is a real serious problem for mankind and we're not addressing it absolutely absolutely and i don't think we have to cover up the whole 40 percent if we could cover up you know 20 percent of that 40 percent um it would make a huge difference and that can be through cover crops um, which are very simple. Cover crops can happen in, you know, a season or two seasons. And and then forestry. Forestry, you know, stopping to cut the forest down and rebuilding forests from the edges outward will help cover the land. And then it also, all of these things, anytime you plant things, it brings back the water cycle. So it brings back the cooling effect. So by covering the land, we can not only reduce the amount of re-radiation coming off, but we can increase the amount of cooling. That's That would be awesome. You know, I when I watch your film and I talk to you, I, I think of this young farmer I had on my show, just a guy, a young local farmer who said, you know, you know, Kevin, the, the bare soil is a wound on the face of the earth. And the weeds jump in there to scab it over because that's the process. And I, that was such a great analogy, you know, that and, yeah, 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 very good. And, you know, and then so I since then I bought into the cover crops and I personally can attest that my garden is far better with a cover crop. It's amazing. And the stuff like hairy vetch coming out of the garden, it's part of the cover crop is now flowering and I have bees galore and they're pollinating my tomatoes. So that's happiness, you know, and it just makes total sense once you you figure this out and uh, absolutely and cover crops are not a new thing in the in the film i talk about the solutions that were brought about to the dust bowl and part of that was cover crops and there have always been cover crops but they don't look so good to the industrial farmer right right and, and that can you... change that can change there are people who are developing you know, large scale regenerative agriculture, including cover crops. So, you know, we can change that. Yep. You have a lot of examples of that in this film, folks. You got to go see the film. There's so much we can't not get to. But Satesh Kumar said there, soil is life. Soil is the source of life. You only need to take care of the soil and the soil will give you food, housing, clothing, etc. If you want to solve the climate change, all you have to do is take care of the soil. You don't need technology. That's what he says, right? I mean, it's just a, a simple statement, but it, it rings so true. Right, right. No, the soil, the soil is everything. So yeah. you went to when you went to India, it was that's pretty they're pretty remarkably doing some things that most people aren't doing now, you know, Vandava Shiva and um oh Vijay Kumar. Vijay with, Kumar. Yeah, maybe you can touch on a couple of those things like the zero budget natural farming that's in the film. I, I found that very fascinating that they're just taking it a, a step to make it work for their populace. So yes, that that idea was introduced to me uh, by a um, D.D. Pierce house, and, and she encouraged me to go to India and talk to Vijay. What he's developed, and it wasn't just him, but there are many people who've developed this 
the system um, that, the, that was in response to the Green Revolution in India, in which farmers can come, become self-sustaining and grow the crops that they need and grow enough crops that they can take some to market without having to put out any money. And the way they do this is by essentially recycling the cow poop and cow urine. And I filmed the process of doing it and it was really fascinating and wonderful, wonderful farmers I met with there. Um, and basically they make a mixture of the cow poop, the uh, urine, and then they put in a little lime, which is for the, uh, the pee, for the nitrogen fixation. And then they uh, also add a little sugar and a little local soil. And they add local soil so they can get some local bacteria. So they make these balls out of this mixture and they're about the size of a, of a baseball. And they, um, they leave them outside and then they let them ferment. And they ferment from the inside out because of the bacteria. And then they crush them and put them on the fields. And they do a lot of other stuff with natural processes like this. They inoculate the seeds in the same way. So they put a little coating on the seeds of this same mixture. And they've had remarkable results, remarkable. It's really astounding. And so it used to be in India, you were really dependent on the, the timing was dependent on the monsoons. When the monsoons came, your crops would grow and they would flourish. But if you planted too early or too late, you might not get your crop. So it was really a timing exercise. But with this method, they found that they're independent of when the monsoon comes. And in fact, they even discovered at one point during a drought that even if there was no monsoon, their plants would, would germinate and grow, um, whereas the neighbor's plants wouldn't. So it was, it was quite astounding. And we talk about that in the film. And what's also interesting, it's nothing that, of course, nature hasn't already done. Well, animals poop on the ground all the time. Right. right? You have a big section in there about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, animals, animals poop. The deer poops on our lawn, you know, and that all goes into the soil. And, of course, they pee on the ground. And birds take seeds, you know, eat the berries, and then they poop out the seeds. And that's naturally inoculating the seeds. There you so, go. You know, I don't know that this that they got their idea by watching nature, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had kind sure. of pieced it together by these natural processes. So, since we're talking about India, the, I mean, explain to the audience why Vandana Shiva is such an important voice. I mean, she made a lot of headway and change in India that has also affected a lot of the rest of the world too. By example, well, well why questions are always hard. Why did she make such a difference? I think that. As you'll see in the film, she's an incredible speaker, and she really speaks truth to power. She really has found her voice to tell people what's really going on. And it's amazing. And all of what she's saying resonates because she's thinking about the people and how the people live and how the people have always lived and how the corporate onslaught has ruined that. So she wants to bring that back. And what she taught me, along with Karen Washington, but what she taught me is that if you think about all the problems that we have with the climate, with the environment, and with health, and with poverty, it all comes down to food. And if people can grow their own food and have control of their own food system, so many of these problems can be solved. Because, you know, if you grow your own food, then you won't go hungry. 
Right. And if you and if you grow your own food and take care of the soil, yeah, at least control. in that little bit of area, you're taking care of climate change. And if you grow your own food, you'll be healthier because it's it's not going to have you know pesticides and stuff like that in it, and you're you know you're not going to eat so much junk food. So it's really food is really a win-win situation. It's uh, growing your own food. It's not the only win-win situation for climate change, but it's really phenomenal. And and you know someone you know, was asking me, what can I do? What can I do right now for climate change? And I was saying, well, start eating fresh local food. And if you can grow some food, and if you can't grow some food, link up with someone who can grow food and start distributing their food. Right. Join a CSA. Join a CSA. Right. And there are lots of CSAs, you know. I just wanted to mention about Vendana that she fought back against what you're talking about, the corporate food system, because they were they were trying to take control of their seed. And they just fought that. They even got all kinds of laws passed that they have a right to grow their own seed, grow their own food, own their seed, which was something the corporation was trying to take over. And she fought and successfully won that battle. Maybe we could address the idea that what she got people to do is take control of what they can take control of. And then I'd like you to address what you called philanthropic imperialism, which (laughs) plays in there. I love that term. So explain philanthropic imperialism to us. Well, that's Vandana's term. I didn't make that that up. Well, I think that we're all aware of it, that Philanthropy, big organizations want to, and I think legitimately, want to help others. They want to help people in Africa. They want to help people in impoverished countries and so forth. So they bring in their own techniques of doing things, in this case, huge crops and genetic engineering and so forth. And then they kind of twist the arms of the government and the people to think that this is the best way to do things, things that they've been doing for centuries, but that this is the best way to do things and that they, being the Western smart ones, are going to be able to solve their problems. So it's really just colonialism, imperialism, through the guise of helping people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens um, all the and time. It, and it happens all the time, and the U.S. does it. And, you know, there's there's no no argument against the idea that when companies come in to industrialize Africa or India, they're doing it for profit. Sure. I mean, they may say they're doing it for uh, philanthropic reasons, and the U.S. government may give aid to help these countries, but it's all for profit. But they tend to like big projects. I like in the book, The Confessions of an Economic Hitman, they, they're w- really willing to give you a big loan because that straps you to them, and they build their dam, and and, and it makes profits for them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking to John Feldman, filmmaker, and he has a great new film out called Regenerating Life. He also did Symbiotic Earth, one of my favorite films. It's uh, It's been screened here down in Bridgeport, and we're going to try to get this film, Regenerating Life, down here as well. So stay tuned to PKN to find out when that may happen. You know, today, uh, David Attenborough came out and said, things are getting worse. This is the new extinction, and we are halfway through it. We are in terrible, terrible trouble, and the longer we wait to do something about it, the worse it's going to get. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's getting worse and worse, and all of the solutions, none of which have done anything. I mean, we have not been able to cut our carbon emissions, even if that was the problem. We haven't been able to cut our carbon emissions. We've just been making things worse. 
That's absolutely true. But I'm hopeful that, you know, we can turn things around. How? Give me some hope. Well, we could change our agriculture, as we were talking about before. We could stop cutting down the forests. There could be, you know, it's hard to tell another country to stop cutting down the forests, but... Because we know. did it already. <laughs> huh? Because we did it already. <laughs> yeah, because we did it already. Um, but we could stop cutting down the forests. I think if more people understood that cutting down forests and destroying the environment and mining was the cause of climate change, they would be more open to some of these things. I mean, although most people want to save the forests, you know, it's not as important to them, perhaps, as buying an electric car, because, of course, they think that buying an electric car is going to help the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. I think they're hopeful signs. I mean, there's a lot of CSAs. There's a lot of groups, as you know, who are doing regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. And I think the solutions are known, although it, it's, you know, it seems like an impossible hurdle to get those solutions scaled up and to get governments behind it. Right. It's like this, this, it's like this thing I heard about the, about the healthcare. Someone on the news was saying, you know, look, any high school kid could come up with a better healthcare system, but they couldn't get it through Congress. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that's not funny actually <laughs> but you know the uh you're right it's like speed and scale is our biggest problem right now right we there are solutions we know what they are and right. there's a lot of people trying to enact them but we get people who are bringing snowballs into congress to say you know uh what climate change you know <laughs> they just have an ignorance that's beyond the pale right yeah i mean it's it's a big issue and but i think it's doable and i think that you know it's all got to be all of this stuff has got to be community-based, community agriculture, community education. That's why I'm starting this film with community screenings, community energy, community water. All of these things need to be part of what a community does for itself and where they have sovereignty. A little more cooperation, right? Cooperation and working together and trying to, to understand that the big utilities and the big industry and whatever they are, shouldn't run your community right and you know today across my desk came this thing from professor strachan i I hope i'm pronouncing his name correctly professor strachan he's the co-leader of energy and sustainability and society research group at aberdeen business school and he says there's eight things the world must do to avoid the worst of climate change because i think we can agree that there's going to be some climate change and we're going to have some major issues but well, we're, we're already tr- we're already having them, right? Yeah, yeah. It's we can see it. You know, the the skies over the northeast recently. You know, the tornadoes all over the place. The warming oceans right. with the sargassum and the, the dead fish. All this stuff is not happening in a void. You know, it's happening for a reason, and the planet is changing. But here is his eight things. And I'd like to get your comment. He says the eight things: number one, stop methane emissions. Two, stop deforestation. Three, restore degraded land. Four, change what we eat. Five, go renewable energy. Six, use energy more efficiently. Seven, stop burning fossil fuels. And eight, act now. Well, I, I think those are, are, are good. I think some of those are more significant than others. I mean, the, the, people are putting a lot of emphasis on methane, and um, I don't I don't see methane as a big problem. Again, it's it is a greenhouse gas, but methane is a natural gas. It's 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 an important gas. It, it's a very short-lived gas. 
I think he's um, talking about the gases that are coming out of the oil wells. You know, they just let let them go off. Well, they should be capped. And not not you're not talking cow farts here, even though. You, okay, then in that case, you know, I'd agree. And leaks, a huge amount of leaks from uh, natural gas pipes, which yeah. is methane. Yeah. But the other one, so the second one was the forests. I agree with that. I agree with all of that. I think renewable energy is 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 great, and I think that transition to a although i would always add community community renewable energy right you know a community can get together and have a huge solar farm but you don't want necessarily to have that go into the grid i mean that's a problem but you know it'd be great uh what were the other ones change what we eat renewable energy energy more use energy more efficiently right i mean i i agree with all of that i assume when he says change what you eat He's talking about eating nutritious food and not junk food. And probably less meat. He's probably talking about less meat. And, you know, I don't think there's any problem with eating meat. Neither there do is I. a problem with how we grow it. And we certainly in the Western world eat too much meat and we waste too much meat and we eat too much meat. But meat itself, you know, animals on the land is certainly not a problem. Yeah, it's just the factory farms and stuff that are causing the biggest the factory problems. Factory farms and and the over the overproduction of of meat and and you know sure yeah. it's a, that's it's a big issue and chickens too. Yeah, probably stop harvesting the oceans we could put in there too. Oh boy, well that's, that's a, a big, big deal. That's a big one, and that's a big one. I mean, there's some people that said we have to stop eating all fish. Yeah, and I I tried for a while, but I. No, I think it's moderation, right? Moderation in all things. Moderation. And then try right. to replenish what you take. It's not just exploiting, exploiting, and extraction, in my opinion. And we need to figure out how to take and then also replace, put back what you take. Right. And I think right. that comes in with the soil, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we can we can turn bad soil into good soil in a, in a few years of active work on it right with covered crops and with compost and so forth it's happening yep. all the time yep and one of your guests said it's going to take us the next four decades to turn it around if we get started right now right which isn't so bad that's no, not too bad i mean it's yeah. doable i mean that's the point this is doable and we owe it to our grandchildren and our children you know to i that's why i do what i do because of my grandchildren i don't want to have them look back and go why didn't they do anything you know we, we need to start doing it and Part of it, I guess, is that it's a slow motion kind of failure going on, don't you think? I mean, it's a gradual failure, a, a, a gradual decline. Oh, when you say slow motion kind of failure, you mean we don't notice it happening? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's this shifting baseline. Yeah. Syndrome. I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. The shifting baseline. Right. Yeah. We don't, we, what we see now is appears normal, um, but then we degrade the land a little bit and that appears normal uh, mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think overall that that, you know, depending on the day, I, I feel I feel very hopeful because these things can be changed. And much of it is common sense and people are willing to do it. And it doesn't require that much sacrifice. I mean, people were always worried that, you know, oh, we got to go back to living like cavemen or something. You know, it doesn't require that much sacrifice. It's growing our food in a more ecological way and regrowing the forest and learning to live and farm within the forests, which is a big deal. Um, agroforestry is very a very important solution. And really respecting the trees and the plants and nature. I mean, there's a lot of disrespect for nature and a lot of separating ourselves from nature, which we've got to get over. I don't think it's not doable. 
I think that we could have a steady cure or a slow motion cure. Just like you're seeing a slow motion decline, we can have a slow motion cure where we wouldn't notice it, but it would gradually, we'd start to make changes. We'd start to change our food. We'd start to change our building materials, get rid of plastic, you know, and so forth. And I think that there could be a, a, a gradual change for the better. That's good. I th I'm happy to hear you say that because you've been out there on the front lines interviewing everybody and came up with a, a wonderful new film called Regenerating Life. John, thanks so much for joining me here on Digging in the Dirt. It's a pleasure. I can't wait to see you um, and see the film on a big screen. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and you'll, you'll mention that anybody can come to our website and learn about the film and help join the movement. Tell, tell them what that website is. It's Hummingbird Films, Hummingbird Films slash Regenerating Life. But all you have to do is come to Hummingbird Films. We're talking to John Feldman, filmmaker, and he has a great new film out called Regenerating Life. He also did Symbiotic Earth, one of my favorite films. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. Mama Nature told me, I am part of you. You are part of me. When we forgot, she remembered us. When we were lost, she found us. Mama Nature told me, we have more than enough to go around. She showed me a glowing paper birch on the edge of the forest on a south-facing slope, endowed to grow twice as big with all the sunlight it could ever drink. It could tower over, shade out the rest. It disperses its surplus sugars to boost the other trees instead. Could we be like that? Let go of excess, practice fair distribution of sustenance, regardless of what slope we were born on. Mama Nature taught me we are stronger together. She showed me the interspecies marriage of algae and fungi who fell in love across kingdoms, birthed a new life form, capable of making home on stone, adept at staying alive in the harshest conditions. Could we be like that? Join forces across difference, weave our powers, individual but undividable, in the midst of unthinkable circumstances, learn how to flourish together. Mama Nature taught me, blackness is precious and must be respected and must be protected from artificial light and must be tended. She showed me the indigo night, the miracle of starlight, the deep dark ocean, the rich black soils brimming with life. Mama Nature taught me Nothing and no one is disposable. It all goes back to the cycle. She showed me there is no such thing as a way. Not for our waste heaped high in landfills or amassing in the Pacific. Not for our people deemed throwaway, warehoused in cages and open air prisons. There is no escaping the totality of this single beating earth. There is no mistaking all of us belong. Mama Nature told me, you are made of the same matter as stardust. Remember your connection to everything. 
she showed me this animate force of existence pulsing all around us, doing everything in its power to regenerate life, even in death. She showed me a hollowed out tree, still standing, long dead, a hatchery for starlings, a porcupine den, a perch for owls, a hideout for bats, a food cache for chipmunks, a nuthatch's nest. Could we feel our ancestors' love like that? Palpable and present all around us, sheltering and nourishing us, supporting our flourishing. Could we be eternal? Mama Nature taught me Death energizes life. Life necessitates death. She showed me cypress seeds enclosed in cones, sealed shut with resin. The hardened shell, the trapped potential, the awakening flame, the wild inferno, the melting walls, the bursting open, the smoky wind, the scattered soaring, the free fall flight to fresh warm soil, the open sky, the widened space to grow and grow and grow. Could we be like that, rising from devastation, preparing the way for the next stage of thriving? Mama Nature taught me transformation is inevitable, adoption is essential, change creates openings. She showed me how dolphins evolve dorsal fins to withstand the wild movement of the ocean, how plants befriended fungi who helped them migrate out of water, who taught them how to grow roots, who showed them how to survive on scorched land until together they transformed the atmosphere, built soil over stone, and patiently, unmistakably changed the entire world. Could we be like that? Work together to do the unthinkable and shift the course of destiny. Mama Nature asked me, what will be your contribution? How will you partner with renewal to usher evolution? What are you willing to let go of? How are you willing to grow? Will you remember you are intrinsic to something bigger? What will you give rise to with a life force you've been given? Mama Nature asked me, can you hear me? And are you listening?